Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we're getting into Genesis chapter 12, and this is where the uh, patriarchal history begins in Genesis. And this is really, uh, when we think of Genesis, this is what we think of. We think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Israel, kind of being formed, the covenant. Um, And what's really interesting about the difference here between Genesis 12 through 50 uh, as opposed to Genesis 1 through 11, is Genesis 1 through 11 has the stories we remember. Genesis 12 through 50 has some stories that we remember, but it's a really long narrative with a bunch of stuff that I don't think we always pay attention to. Um, so we do kind of have to treat this, though, as its own book because it's so different than Genesis 1 through 11. And so let's uh, let's just back up for a minute. Where where are we going now that we're into this next section of Genesis? Yeah, so these next chapters in Genesis present us with the stories of Israel's ancestors. And all those narratives around those ancestors will become the roots of some of the most elemental themes of the Jewish faith. And then, of course, then into the Christian faith. So here what we see is a shift from these cosmic histories that we were just going through with Uh, chapters 1 through 11, to a more narrow focus. Now we're talking about the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. It starts with Abraham and Sarah, and that's chapters 12 through 25. And then we see Isaac and Rebekah, and that goes through 25 through 27. Uh, The story of Jacob and Rachel through 25 through 36, and then finally a whole different cycle they call the Joseph cycle, and that's the stories of Joseph in Egypt, and that goes through 37 through 50. So it's a whole big family story, and the genealogies that we were talking about then in uh, the at the end there of chapter 11, now they're kind of explained in the form of narrative genres. So we get these different stories about people and marriage, and there's these themes of acquiring land or getting promises of land, and then how to find appropriate wives, and then how that will uh, involve the order and inheritance of the sons. So that's really, uh, you know, very important. And then along the way, we see some related um, tribes and related peoples like the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites who kind of come in, but, you know, the separation between those two. So what we'll see here is what a particular scholar, Richard Alter, calls type scenes. And it's like common motifs that carry through. So you might have a story about, you'll see a woman sitting by a well, and then she meets the man she's going to marry. Say Isaac meets Rebecca at the well. You know, Jacob, you know, Rachel comes and she's there at the well and he rolls the stone away. So that's a common type scene that we'll see. And that's a story that's common. Another one is where the, a particular couple may be traveling through a foreign land and there's some danger to the wife and the, the, the husband will say, you know, pretend you're my sister. And that, you know, it turns into this whole thing. We see that one three times. We'll get into that a little bit more because that's got a lot of details to it. And these type scenes, that's not just Genesis. This is stuff right. that's going to be setting up other imagery throughout, uh, you know, the Hebrew scriptures in general. Yeah, it's almost like once you hear that story or you hear that that type scene, now you know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it becomes kind of a common part of the Jewish consciousness. And all this stuff then is gathered around this single point, and that's the promise of God to the to the ancestors of Israel. And it's important because that covenant promise gets included, redacted, even into earlier texts and earlier stories that originally didn't have anything to do with it, but those stories are brought in as they are seen to be uh, coherent with that promise of the covenant. So we have kind of a, a tension that goes on between promises given by God 
And then there's an anxiety about how is that promise going to take place because either the couple is elderly and or they are barren and we need them to be able to produce children. And all of this is important because this is how the covenant's going to get set up. And you almost have to think about this section of Genesis. I know we mentioned this in the overview. You have to think about Genesis as the prelude to Exodus. So it's not just about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's not just about the development of Israel. It's not just about these uh, socio-historic cultural references that are helpful to know about. It's how is this going to impact, you know, eventually these people are going to be in Egypt and then stuff's not going to go well. And then it's going to be this journey of them becoming the people. And that's all based on what started here. So as you're wrestling with this, like, uh, what, what are we talking about? Type scenes and matriarchal disasters. And uh, you have to think about that through the context of as the covenant continues, you need to know how it started. And this is where, you know, Genesis is one of my favorite books. Is Genesis the most important book? No. But it is the principle of first mention. This is where everything has its roots. And, and that's true of Genesis 1 through 11. It's more true about these chapters uh, that we're getting into um, through the rest of the book. Now, there's also this idea of the uh, circles of tradition. And I think this comes from Brueggemann. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is this is important in understanding how this is this story is getting layered together. Yeah, I think this is maybe why they put the book of Genesis first in 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 the Torah or in the Tanakh because these are things that set up um, things that we'll we'll see even in Deuteronomy later on uh, as we go through the whole Bible all through the whole Old Testament. Uh, there's a biblical scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and he has what he calls the circles of tradition. And there's three, and it starts with the covenant promise, which functions as a hinge between the earlier history we were just talking about and then the history of the Israelite people. So in the earlier histories, we see the nations kind of creating a world of chaos, a problem. It's a, a world that the, interac- that the divine has a problem interacting with. And then the promise then that's given to Abraham, and then hence Israel, is that their blessing will overcome that. It will overcome that chaos or what they call that curse. Um, Then this promise narrative goes into a relationship with the Deuteronomistic literature. Well, and before you do that one, you you use intentional language there. Yeah. Chaos and curse. Right. And where does that language come from? Genesis 1 through 3. Absolutely. So, so you should be paying attention. It's, it's almost like the authors were going, all right, Exodus. Well, what do they need to know to understand why that? So, ah, well, let's talk about Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob. Well, but then we got to talk about creation and how everything came into being and what went wrong. So it, that's how this story, you got to see it as these layers put together yeah. that help make sense of things uh, as as it goes. You know, are, are some of these narratives going to be really fun and entertaining on their own? Absolutely. Are there specific theological emphases in the particular stories? Absolutely. But there's this zoomed out perspective of seeing the overarching narrative come together as a whole. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people from Jewish perspective will say Deuteronomy is more important for understanding the covenant than Genesis, than Leviticus. You know, Exodus is still the central story, but Deuteronomy, that's that's what you got to know. 
Um, and so to see how Genesis is even helping us to understand what the Deuteronomists are going to say, and, and you know, we'll probably get to this at some point. Right. The, the Deuteronomistic history, that covers uh, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, mm-hmm. Samuel, Kings, a huge chunk of the Hebrew scriptures are from that perspective. So Genesis is aiding that. So that's, that's this, that's this other circle of tradition. So how do, how does that one connect? Yeah, that would be like maybe that second layer then. So we have the promise of this land, but then to bring it into relationship with that Deuteronomistic literature, um, it concerns the idea that Israel has now received that promised land, but now they have to have that obedience to Torah in order to govern and keep the land. And so then that's connected to that. And then as it moves forward into the exile, now you're talking about you're moving through Israelite history up to the time when they go into exile to Babylon. And the Israelite people now have to struggle with the loss of that land. They had the promised land. Somehow they felt they did not stay in in right relationship to that land. Now they've lost that land. And yet this promise, this covenant that's been given, holds up that hope that God's will is still at work on the behalf of this displaced community, that God will keep God's promise and that Israel will be able to be restored. And then that will bring that blessing to the whole nations. So becomes a great big huge picture mm-hmm. of what's going on and, and seriously pay attention to those as you go so i know this is kind of overview part two but um transcendent d- d- determination you could say of the promises and belonging to something um even as things get a little bit dicey how does the transcendent uh odd and i interact with those situations mm-hmm. what role does the land have as they go and and you know you're going to see this in, in just a few chapters in Genesis um, as, as we get going here, that having a piece of property, you need to justify why your people should have that. Right. Genesis is kind of justifying that for the future of Israel. Um, and, and then as you look at how Adonai interacts with the covenant um, when Israel doesn't really uphold their end of the deal, that's going to be something that comes up again and again through, throughout this uh, the, the rest of these chapters. So to see how Adonai, the transcendent, interacts with uh, the, the, the people of Israel in particular and the land, that's all setting up uh, stuff that's going to be really important as you read through the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures and even into the New Testament. Absolutely. I think this story of the covenant is crucial to understand um, because of exile, we can think of that exile to Babylon as kind of the fulcrum event in Israelites' history. Um, and that covenant then, think of that as the fulcrum, then the covenant is almost like a board that balances upon that. So as the Israelite people experience slavery and exodus, then entrance into the promised land, but then loss of that land at the hand of the conquering Babylonians, and then the restoration when they come back from exile. It's all the way it goes back and forth. And it also deeply influences even the teachings of Jesus and Paul and the way the first Christians would have had an idea about even who Jesus was and how his story played out. So it's very, very crucial to understand. I think we really need to pay attention to this. And what you're going to get here in Genesis is the foundation of that covenant. So how does the covenant work? What's it look like? How did it start out? Um, What were the initial problems? All that's established here. So it's important to pay attention to that if you want to make sense of those later developments. So that gets us into chapter 12.
Yes, which first thing we're going to read about here is a covenantal promise. So that first, you know, what, what Brueggemann calls a circle of tradition. Um, you're also going to get some some type scene situations here. Um, so this is a really, really important chapter. So the first thing that we see here is picking right up from where Genesis 11 ended. And uh, where Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself in Genesis. Abram, Abram is told to go from his country, kindred, father's house, to the land that uh, Adonai will will show Abram. And I I had mentioned last episode, this is a backwards arc uh, through civilization. And I think that's, that's very important, actually. So Abram is told to leave, you know, the comfort uh, of, of developed culture, right? And, and the security of his home in Babylon, both of those things. And really, this is the source of his identity, you know, and everything that he does. And he's told to become a nomad. And that's what you're going to see as, as you go through these initial chapters, uh, you know, Genesis 12, kind of up into uh, Isaac. Abram's a nomad. He's got his family and his stuff, but he's wandering around. Um, and this also involves, in, in, I, I intend there, I probably should be more explicit about that. Uh, yeah, Genesis 4. Okay, Abram becomes a nomad. And we made a case that Abel was a nomad. All right. So you see that happening. But he's also at the same time leaving the epicenter of, you know, progressive culture, if we want to call it that. And the life they had to to go to do this unknown mysterious thing is going to have hints of what we just read in Genesis 1 through 11, right? And I would make a, a theological point here that this is the only way he can become the gift to the world that Adonai is about to address, right? He, he needs to give certain things up to bring this particular world that's been the hope since Genesis 1 and 2. And I just think it's in, interesting that, you know, it happens from the lowly place of nomads in an uncivilized territory, which is Canaan and the Levant at this point. And uh, that is, again, something I think is a motif throughout. And I know we mentioned this last episode, a yeah. motif throughout. Uh, but this is where you get now uh, the, the central covenantal blessing. So anytime you see the covenant talked about, this is the principle of first mention. It comes back to this. And what we're told is that Abram is blessed and made great so that he will be a blessing. That's the central idea of the covenant. So if you're reading Jeremiah, you're reading Isaiah, you're reading New Testament Gospels, you're reading Deuteronomy, you're reading about David, you're reading about the uh, Israeli uh, kings. Covenant comes up, got to go back to Genesis 12 all the time. Like, we should know that. But then you get this other line uh, that who who you bless, um, I will bless, and who you curse, I will curse, which is an interesting addition to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. The problem is that Abram's going to be blessed so that he will be a blessing. So why would he curse anybody? And the trick to the question here, or the, the trick to the statement, is that, you know, who you bless, I will bless. Who you curse, I will curse. And through you, all the earth will be blessed. And it's just a, I love, 
Do you, are you picking up what's going on there? It's like you don't get to curse anybody. Yeah. There's nobody's going to be cursed. Yeah. So, so at yeah, the absolutely. end of the day, who's going to be cursed? Uh-huh. Well, all the earth is going to be blessed. Yeah. So you're given a, a particular um, telos or a goal or purpose to, to how this is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. And you also have to see this blessing and this covenant as an alternative to recreation. And we brought this up in, in Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, is that the the flood narrative is a, a restart to creation. Yeah. And uh, God promises at the end of that as part of the covenant that, um, you know, the, the waters from the deep will never be used to restart creation again. Right. Basically how I translate that. Um, and so we have the same problems because mm-hmm. then Babel happened. I was going to say, nothing really changed. It, it, we still have this issue. How are we going to deal with this issue? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, a covenant of blessing. Mm-hmm. And it's going to start with one person, and eventually it's supposed to go to all the earth, which should tell uh, tell the reader this is a really slow process. It's not going to happen all at once. It's not going to be 40 days. It's, it's, it's going to be a really slow process. Um, and that's kind of the intention I see with within the narrative itself is this is meant to take a long time. Yeah. This is meant to be drawn out. But that's right there. That transition us into Genesis 12. That's how the covenant begins. That's right. Yeah. And we kind of see a pattern to that story. So there, we'll see three divine speeches that go into that idea of covenant. And there's kind of this pattern, like you were saying, first, you got to move, you got to leave. And that's the command given. But then there's also a promise then that follows that, which I think is pretty cool. So mm-hmm. Abram is called to take up his stuff and his family. And yet he has to move to an unspecified land that God will give him. And what's kind of interesting about that is at this point, Abram, we don't really know a whole lot about him. It's like, it's not like he's really done anything to earn this. So you can't, uh, you know, you can't say, well, at that point, I don't think he's called righteous yet. So we just know nothing about him as a character. Um, All we know for sure is that his wife, Sarai, is barren. And that's one of those motifs that we talked about becomes part of uh, Israel's history. Um, And then it kind of leads the hearer to understanding that something's about to happen here. Anybody that was reading that might catch that then and go, something's happening here because then there is a promise and um, God does bless Abraham eventually with the promise of an offspring that will become a mighty nation. So in contrast then to that Noah covenant, this is a covenant given with a single person, Abraham, and it takes the kind of the shape of of a... kingly or a suzerain covenant where you have one person offering land and, and protection in response to some kind of right. um, tithe or tribute or, or worship given. And, and those those promises themselves become really important because yeah. when you start the book of Exodus, uh, you have you have to have these two promises in mind. The first one is that you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right. The second one is the promise of land. Right. And And it comes from that sort of vassal interaction mm-hmm. and that theme is going to pick up as you get into Leviticus a little bit, but Deuteronomy and numbers, especially. Um, but you'll notice every time you get one of these divine speeches, the promises get more detailed Yeah, and specific things get brought up. So right here, this one starts out really general, broad brushstroke, and then it'll get more, um, uh, more explicit with how it's going to happen, what it looks like, what's involved as as each one goes. And that's where it's important to layer them, right? So you have to start with Genesis 12 to understand what the whole direction of this is. And then the, the pieces will get added on um, as they go. 
Now from here, uh, one detail that I love that can, you know, you do whatever you want with this, but uh, in verse four, there's uh, a, a language game being played, I, I think, with the reader. Um, because Abram goes and, and Lot goes with Abram. That's going to be important for the next chapter. Right. And it says that he goes as Adonai spoke. So if you're, you, uh, an English translation will usually have this as um, Abram went as Adonai had told him. But you could translate this as Abram went as Adonai spoke. And there's a certain immediacy in the Hebrew that it's like as as Adonai speaking, Abram's listening and he's like packing up and he's already moving. Um, and this is where you start to get that um, perspective of, you know, we don't know a lot about Abram, but he's faithful. He's listening. He's obedient yeah. in, in a particular way. Um, now, again, you got to understand too, Abram is becoming nomadic here and he's going to be a, a nomad. So is Lot and they're nomads with a lot of possessions and people. Okay, so this is a whole tribe wandering mm -hmm. around, and this would not have been abnormal. No, there was other wandering people at that time, and and they'd be Absolutely. large groups, and you know yeah. they have have a whole process about how they would move. Mm -hmm. um, but keep this in mind: that means Abram is quite affluent. Yeah, Abram's not a poor wandering beggar. He didn't okay. leave Ur in, in any. Yeah, no, he had plenty when he left, <laughs> um, and he gets richer as we'll find out. Yes. And he goes, uh, Abram goes towards Canaan. Okay, mm -hmm. so go think back to Genesis 9. Uh, this, these people are cursed, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking about land, how do we know that we can get this land? Well, remember what Canaan's uh, dad, Ham, did? Mm -hmm. That's going to become our land. Well, it doesn't get into that yet, but that's, that's where this is going. Um, and Abram builds an altar at uh, Shechem. Shechem's a place that's going to become really important later, um, especially as you start getting into the, the monarchy stories. Um, and we're told about at the Oaks of Morah, Abram builds an altar. Now, a couple things that are important about this. Every time there's one of these divine promises given, uh, the response is to uh, build an altar. You first okay. saw this with Noah. Mm -hmm. and that happened with Noah. What was Noah's response? Built an altar. Um, another thing that this does, though, is this establishes the first property of Israel in the land of Canaan. Okay. Hmm. They now got a little plot staked out. Yep. And then, uh, and then you're going to see this with Bethel, which Bethel just means house of God. Um, and then I... Uh, or as we call it here in rural Northwest Ohio, AI, which is <laughs> literally like a small village, like five miles south of where I'm sitting right now. Um, and that that town is going to be important in the book of Joshua. And so you're seeing these places mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. And um, another line you get here, super important, invoked, they invoke the name of Adonai. We haven't seen that line since Genesis 4. That's right. All right. So that's kind of what's going on in that section. And now uh, that kind of ends there. The, mm -hmm. the blessing, promise, divine communication part, that kind of stops. Got to The covenant description is, is something you got to hold on to. Seeing Abram as a nomad, 
realizing that they've now got some some land in Canaan that they've they've done some stuff to. Those are all things the the author I think wants you to see. And then it moves into a story that um, is much more narrative in its focus, yeah. and, and there's character development. And now we're starting to get a glimpse of uh, Abram. But from here, they moved it from Canaan and they traveled down to Egypt. Now, there's a lot going on here. First thing, places so far have been really important. And you're going to get this, and you've gotten already a cascade of important names, you know, immediately following the the covenantal command of blessing. And then you start seeing these places and names and movement happening. Um, so all, anytime you see a name, a place, pay attention. It's important. Yeah. Um, why do they go to Egypt? And this is not a biblical motif even. This is a ancient Near Eastern cultural motif. Okay. Anytime anything happened, yeah. you get a famine, uh, you go to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt, before you had a lot of groundbreaking irrigation and agricultural production, okay. Egypt was the place that had always had um, food, sto- uh, food storage. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this is because of the Nile and the way that it flooded. And so you were guaranteed to have, as long as the Nile flooded, you were going to have excess food all the time. There was also times when the Nile wouldn't flood. And so the Egyptians got really good at storing food so that if that happened, they were going to be okay. Okay. So they are kind of known as the breadbasket of the ancient world. And it's also what makes them economically really powerful. Mm-hmm. Is they always had a lot of food. Yeah. Um, and so that's what happens here. Catalyzed by famine, they go down to Egypt. And you'll notice that um, as we look at the story, Pharaoh is not named. That's right. There's other places where Pharaoh is named. And um, the pharaohs of ancient history, one of the most well-documented institutional structures. Oh, gosh, yeah, they love to write things down. It's unprecedented in ancient history how much we know about that. Mm -hmm. And here, we're not told the name of the pharaoh. And one of the reasons why is some scholars uh, propose that this is not about a specific moment in Egypt. This is about this archetypal Egypt. But now we uh, we get this story, this really strange interaction with Sarai. So what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. Here is where we first find one of those type scenes. And um, what happens then is, as Tyler said, okay, so Abram and Sarai flee to Egypt because a famine is on the land. And as they're moving into Egypt, Abram says to Sarai, Tell everybody that you're my sister, because if they think that you're my wife, I'm liable to be killed. So they go with this lie. They, they go with this idea, and, and Abram lies and says that Sarai is his sister. And then because of that, then the Pharaoh sees her, falls in love with his, his officials, say, boy, you got to see this beautiful woman. And he takes her into his harem. But there's a problem then, because now his harem and his family starts to become plagued. And we see this, you know, the first mention, for example, of plagues. Um, so he realizes then, it finds out then that Sarai is, in fact, Abram's wife. And so he gives her back. And along with her, he gives him a bunch of, of things, money and, and animals and all this stuff, so that they end up quite wealthy as they leave. Now, but before before you get before you get into that, um, the real question of this part 
of Genesis 12 is, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What's going on with this whole interaction? Because it seems a little bit foreign to us. There's some socio-historical context that would be helpful here. Yeah. But also thinking about this in terms of why would he, Abram, potentially allow his wife uh, enter into the situation? And you bring up how Sarai is as important in the covenant and, and its fulfillment as Abram. Right. Because she has to have the child. But she's also barren. Right. So how does this play into this the story of them in Egypt? Yeah, I think that Abram misses the point in the fact that because she is barren, he may not realize that she's supposed to be the mother then of that covenantal child. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the fact that in that context, if he had admitted that she was his wife, he's much more likely to be killed. Whereas if he presents himself as her brother, now there is a chance for a regular legal marriage arrangement to happen. And it right. actually was not an unusual thing in that context where, especially in the Hurrian people who are one of the surrounding nations there, that a man would get married and then he would adopt his wife as a sister and it gave her some more legal rights. So this wouldn't have been unusual for him to say, well, yes, she is my wife, but she's also my sister. But in doing that, he's also potentially saying, well, she's barren, so she's not going to be able to have an an heir anyways. It's going to have to come from somebody else. So this might help me get out of this tricky situation. Might also gain me some stuff mm-hmm. so let's go ahead and go this route and uh, you know for we got to point out this wouldn't have been too unusual if you're associated with the Hurrian people right um but this is also saying something about how uh abram views the process of childbearing according to the covenant um and we're going to see this come up again later where he's going to go well my wife can't have this child. We right. have to figure out another way. And so where just a little bit ago, you saw some faithfulness by Abram. Now you're seeing some unfaithfulness and not even just to Sarai, but, <laughs> yeah. but to uh, the covenant itself. Um, so that's kind of one of the complications with, with what's going on when he does this. Yeah, I mean, we don't even want to get into the whole concept of the way Sarah may have felt about this. Um, Unfortunately, back then, it was a patriarchal story written by men. They were not considering women and how she felt about it. But um, yes, even in that sense, he was not really, he was trying to to decide for himself how the covenant was going to go rather than being faithful to the idea of the promise that he'd been given. And this is a uh, another motif that you see with some of the patriarchal um, um, ancestors, so specifically Abram and Jacob, is this idea of self-preservation. Yeah. So I actually look at this story as a negative portrayal of Abram. Yeah, it doesn't say much about his character at this point. So you had brought this up. If he walks into a- a- Egypt and, you know, they remark, Sarah is beautiful. Uh, if the, somebody like Pharaoh wants to marry Sarai, and especially take her on as a wife or concubine. If if they know that Abram is the husband of Sarai, mm-hmm. they now have to kill him in order to have access to this woman. That's right. Killing Abram would make Sarai available for marriage. So one of the points is, 
Abram doesn't want to die. Mm-hmm. So he puts Sarai in this position, also potentially compromises the heir of, um, of, of, for the covenant because if Sarai sleeps with somebody else and does get pregnant, we don't know then if that's Abram's kid or if that's Pharaoh's kid. So that would be a complication. There's also this issue that um, a, a person having an heir who's not a virgin and who has um, already had a child from somebody else could potentially taint the heir that comes from the person it's supposed yeah, to come from, they, in this case, Abram. Yeah, yeah. They did have kind of that idea that um, once a woman had slept with one man, it would taint children. Even if she didn't have a child by that man, it would taint children even in the future. Yeah. So it's kind of an idea, and, and I feel, have a feeling that there may be some cultures that believe this to this day. Well, so it, Abram, Abram's willing to yeah. compromise all of that. So he doesn't die. Yeah, and so he can get some stuff because, like you said, it's definitely economically advan- advantageous to him. Well, yeah. and uh, so so he'd have to die in order for her to be eligible for marriage. Mm-hmm. If he is a nomad who is really affluent and has lots of possessions and servants, by killing Abram, if he has no children, that now becomes Sarai's stuff. Whoever marries Sarai gets all the stuff. That's you true. would see this mm-hmm. doesn't have much to do with romance or a fair marriage or, really didn't back then it, it, it it's not the pharaoh going i that that woman is so beautiful it's pharaoh going i can get all that stuff mm-hmm. and abram going no no don't kill me i'm just uh this is just my sister mm-hmm. you know so and, and it causes all of these problems and that's why I said there's a lack of faithfulness there's a lack of um um cognition about the implications this could have within that society. But then, as you mentioned at the same time, this, the result of this is not good for Pharaoh because the no. truth comes out. Um, so yeah, but if, if, if Sarai is Abram's sister, that makes her available for marriage. That would also result in an alliance, mm-hmm. which Abram might want could be very helpful, you know, to help spur the covenant forward and get some land. And here we go. And all of this is kind of a way I see of pointing to Abram's not doing this according to how Adonai had said it. Right. Right. Um, and the stuff that Abram gets in return, because, you know, these plagues happen and the Pharaoh's like, you got to get out of here. Um, there's, I, I've read one thing where he actually get that, gets that stuff as a dowry for giving his sister to Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And then all the bad stuff happens and Pharaoh just says, keep the dowry. That, that's actually what's going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at, at, at the least, he leaves with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of this is good. In, in fact, I would say that the result of the plagues, I think this is meant to strike poorly against Abram, right? Because he's supposed to be blessing the world. Exactly. And here he is deceitfully causing curses. Mm-hmm. That goes back to him. And he's accumulating through, you could claim, a form of prostitution, mm-hmm. all without respecting the process that Adonai has said of how this is going to happen. You know, maybe he's trying to get land prematurely. Uh, he's, he's assuming that an heir is going to come through someone else or some, some other process. He's not doing any of this according to what just happened earlier in the chapter. Right. Um, and I think this is an intentional mark against Abram, one, to elevate uh, Adonai and transcendence, um, but also to show that the process of Israel's covenant hasn't always done been done well. 
And because you're going to see this again with Isaac, you're going to yeah. see this again with Jacob, especially this motif of self-preservation. Well, and it happens again with Sarah and Abram later yeah. on with King Abimelech. And that's the one I was talking about because it's they make a point of saying she, you know, Abimelech didn't sleep with her. And then he gave once he found out she was Abram's wife, then he gives her back and he had never actually touched her, it says. Yeah. So he's actually offended. Here's a, a pagan guy offended by something that Abram has done by saying, yeah. you didn't tell me she was your wife. Get out of here. What were you thinking? And thinking about this as sort of a symbolic metaphor for Israel as a whole, mm-hmm. Israel is going to continually mess up the process of the covenant not do what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and God is somehow going to have to interact with the mess that they make. Yeah. And, and it's just interesting. The first real story we get of Abram and it isn't very positive. All right. Now, after this experience with the Egyptian Pharaoh, we move into another chapter, chapter 13, but a kind of, We're still kind of in the same setting, if that makes sense. Um, So the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, um, Abram goes to the Negev. Uh, Chapter 12 told us this is where he was initially headed when he was going to go to Egypt and got sidetracked. There was a whole thing with the famine. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe Abram knew exactly what he was doing. (laughs) And, you know, read into it what you want. Um, but he goes back to where the altars were. And so this kind of feels like a retry. Um, again, I, I take the perspective that that scene in Genesis 12 at the end, not a good thing. So it, it kind of seems like a- Abram uh, turns around, repents, hmm? mm, uh, okay. and, and going to try to start this over. And we're told that he calls on the name of Adonai again. Okay. So we were told that initially mm-hmm. for the first time since Genesis 4. And not such a good story happens, calls on the name of Adonai again. And then immediately, uh, the next verse, verse 2, we're told that he's rich in livestock, silver, and gold. So why would the text want to portray Abram this way? And, you know, you could go, they're trying to give a sense of the authority for the ancestry. You know, they're trying to prop Abram up as a top-tier kind of guy within society, Um other end of the spectrum, this could be a kind of jab at a potential moral deficit of Abram because that kind of sounds like Tower of Babel, Cain, uh, some of these images that weren't so good. Um, so you kind of have to decide how you want to interpret that. There's a lot of different perspectives on it. But either way, the accumulation of stuff leads to a problem because the land can't support both Abram and Lot's clans. Um and I can't help but read in there that there's some ownership. These clans are developing. They have their own stuff. You know, is there some strife, you know, between herders? Oh, yeah. You know, does this sound familiar? Genesis <laughs> 4, anybody? Because mm-hmm. uh, Cain, the, the land could not support him and Abel both. And there was strife between these people. And here you have Abram and Lot, and there's strife between because the the land can't can't hold them both. Um, and so then we get the solution to the strife and its separation. Yeah. And that's not a good thing. That's never a good thing in the text. The the, the idea of separation. So they leave they leave Ur of the Chaldeans as a single tribe. Right. 
Now they're separate tribes. And the last time we saw separation was Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve were separate and then made one. So people were brought together, and here you have the covenant, and people are separating. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this is a good, meant to be a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, but again, that's, that's kind of me putting my interpretation. It just noticing separate, we've already seen that word, that, that's not supposed to be. There's supposed to be connection, it's supposed to be wholeness, it's supposed to be coming together as one. Mm -hmm. And they were one, and now they've separated. So the next part of the conversation is, uh, they're told, is not the whole land before you. Back up a second. Right. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, we already have been told, lived in the land. The whole land isn't before them. They, <laughs> right. There's people living there. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, again, you need to decide how you want to think about this. Are they claiming what isn't theirs, you know, because of the covenant and they, they can justify it? Or are they overextending their place and where they are trying to take what is not theirs because God has not necessarily told them, I'm giving all of this to you right now. In fact, God's going to say in a, in a later chapter, it's going to be a long time before you're going to live in yeah, this land. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. in, in chapter 15, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just see that. Is not the whole land before you? No, it's not. So what's going on there? And this is constantly you have to go, is this a part of divine direction? Or is this a part of Abram's you know, finite deficit where he's not making really good decisions. I, I always lean towards the, the latter okay. that these are knocks mm -hmm. on Abram. And I think the purpose might be to try to show Abram is not supernatural here. None of this covenant is dependent on how great Abram is. Yeah. Right. It's not about Abram. I mean, he's called righteous, but it's not about the covenant though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say in his defense, this is a case where he has decided to be generous to his nephew. Now he brought his nephew along. We may have forgotten to mention that he, he kind of adopts his nephew and his nephew lot has been going along with him all this time. Um, and at this point, like we said, they've gotten too rich, so they can't, they can't stay together. They're going to have to split up. So, Abram actually gives Lot first choice. He says, well, which, you know, you've got this land. You go the way you want. Whichever way you go, I'll pick the other way. So we do almost see a little bit of character development here where he at least is generous enough to give his nephew the chance to his choose first. first. Choice, yeah, yeah, he gets first choice. And Lot looks around, and he sees the plain of Jordan. Um, and it says it's like the Garden of Yahweh. It's like Egypt. So that's a commentation that the, that the biblical writer gives to us. I'm sure there's just some kind of foreshadowing that, that uh, Tyler, you can elucidate there a little well, bit for us. Yeah, so I, I do think that is a, a unique thing about Abram is he lets him choose first. I still, I'm, I'm still going to hark on, yeah. uh, I don't think the text wants you to see Abram as a great noble person. His, his greatness comes from whatever Adonai does, not Abram. And, and that's important because anybody following the covenant after doesn't feel like they have to attain some standard to belong. Oh, that's true. That they simply belong because mm -hmm. Adonai has acted. We're going to see this heavily in uh, Genesis 15 and 16. Okay. Okay. You might say that, like you were saying, since the land didn't really belong to them anyway, it's easy to give it away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, I don't know. But when we're told what Lot chooses... Right. We get a hint of Saddam and Gomorrah are going to yes. get destroyed. We're also told, 
maybe I just have the eyes to see this word in the text because we're told that this plane is eastward. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. You don't want to go east. Yeah. That is symbolic imagery. Back. You don't want to go east. E- mm-hmm. East is where everything goes wrong. Well, the garden is where it went wrong. Egypt is where it goes wrong. So we have that image of and, it being and the garden since of Yahweh, Genesis like 3, Egypt. we keep getting told. Mm-hmm. And then they moved eastward. And then yeah. they moved eastward. Well, here, Abram is not going to go eastward, but Lot does. Yeah. And things ain't going to go so well for Lot. Mm-hmm. He goes east and the separation's made final. Abram yeah. then settles in Canaan uh, and, and he's still nomadic. Lot goes to cities mm-hmm. and we're told that they're wicked. Yeah. Why? Why? Genesis 11. Mm-hmm. Wait, well, we well, already saw that. So, so that's, that's what I think is important about this picture. Lot chooses the ideal looking location. Mm-hmm. Some self-preservation there. This is going to be easier for me to preserve my clan. Mm-hmm. It's eastward. It involves separation. And it's with this centralized uh, conglomerate of people that look more like civilization that they were supposed to leave. And, and Lot seems to be moving back towards that. And that's not a good thing. Abram goes the other way. And this is where um, sort of the covenant kind of starts over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because it's like God waits until Lot is gone. And then he reiterates this promise to Abram. And I think it's to make it clear that it's through Abram that that promise is going to come because Lot is actually the ancestor to the Ammonites and the Moabites. And these are, you know, people we'll run into later. But I think that kind of sets that up that, that idea that it's only through Abram that, um, that this promise is going to come. So that kind of makes sure that Lot's out of the picture. And and you kind of see that anytime there's a big uh, moment or event, the, something about the covenant's going to come yeah. back up mm-hmm. kind of to place hold the narrative make sure we're all on the same page of where things are at now because this thing happened yeah right um but there's something about here here about wealth and technology and you know how wealth kind of becomes a wall for um abram and lot and the the portrayal of cities and eastward that this whole thing of technological development kind of focuses people inward because Lot's sort of in self-preservation mode. He's looking out for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they come from Egypt, a time when they weren't, you know, so right before they get to Egypt, they were calling on the name of Adonai. Right. You could look at their experience there in Egypt as a time where they weren't calling on the name of Adonai anymore. They were doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they begin this accumulation process and it gets to the point Lot has his stuff. Abraham has his. The land can't support them together. And at this point in the text, too, we're never told that they're traveling together at this point. Right? They they exist sort of as separate and distinct from one another. They've built their own little kingdoms is a way I might look at that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the controversy, the potential fighting, developing, the maybe competition involved, the, I think they're seeing each other as adversaries and strangers. And that's where I go. This feels this chapter feels very similar to Cain and Abel. Um, you know that are aren't aren't you? Uh, am I my brother's keeper? Mm-hmm. Okay. They don't even seem to be asking that question. They just assume we have to go our separate ways. And it gets to the point where Abram's almost saying um, the same thing that happened between Cain and Abel is happening to us. 
So when they decide to separate, you know, what began as a family journeying out into the world with each other, be a blessing, it's become about getting more and more stuff and protecting what is mine. And I think they've forgotten what they're supposed to be doing here. So that might be another reason why God uh, reiterates the covenant. Abram, you seem Mm -hmm. to have forgotten what this was about. And it's been, you know, a chapter and a half. Yeah. Like what, what's going on <laughs> already? Um, so again, I, you'll, you'll probably get this from me in Genesis a lot. I don't think these are noble stories. I think these are still warning flares being shot out. Um, even while the covenant's persisting, the, the chapter kind of ends where, uh, the promise of land, um, to Abram and, and to his offspring starts becoming clear. Mm-hmm. And Abram ends up settling in Hebron, builds another altar to Adonai, um, which is interesting. Canaan has lots of altars to Adonai now because he just keeps building them yes, everywhere. Hmm. Um, so that's an interesting development because uh, having these altars is going to become a problem once you get into the monarchical history and the uh, post-exile experience and all that. So that's just a little foreshadowing for, you know, centuries later. <laughs> 40 um, years from now when we get to that point. Yeah. And when the only thing that I'll mention here theologically, so that's kind of the story, that's some exegetical stuff I see in the text, mm-hmm. is there's a portrayal of the divine will here that's interesting to me. Okay. So I do think that Abram's negative characteristics are a way to elevate the, the divine role. Mm-hmm. So I might use the language of transcendence, and imminence. God does not appear to rely on a, a sentient limited being. Mm-hmm. God in as a transcendent being is instead imminently present and is working with whatever decisions these strange little human creatures decide to do. Right. And I do think there's an elevation here of this is not dependent on Abram. See, look, Abram screws up again and again and again, and it still happens. Yeah, there's nothing he can do to stop it, good or bad. But on the other end of that now, you also have to deal with this um, God in being imminently present still has to work with the decisions that Abram makes. Okay, so we could say that Abram and Lot splitting or Abram uh, doing the whole thing with Sarai in Egypt, Mm -hmm. those are... Not good things, not ideal. That that's that's a disruption from the process here. Yeah. But now Adonai has to work with that. Abram gets to affect the cards that get played. And this is a portrayal of the divine will. Um that sometimes referred to as ultimate will versus adapted will. Okay. And it's not language that I hear especially Christians use a lot. You mm-hmm. know, they either talk about what's the will of God for my life. Um, or, you know, we want to do God's will here. And the, the perspective in this theological notion is that God works with the decisions that Abram and Sarai and Lot make. Mm-hmm. That doesn't end the divine will, but God does adapt it. And that's the difference okay. between ultimate will and adaptive will. Interesting. Um, and to think about that in terms of us is you as a sentient, finite, limited creature are also not going to make the best decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this, the, the narrative of the covenant, you could say, doesn't end. So when people go, you know, this thing happened, it must have been God's will. 
no, that thing might have happened because people are stupid. <laughs> that, yes, indeed. That doesn't mean that God's not involved. Right. But you can't just chalk everything up to God's will. Right. That's what I really love about this notion that mm-hmm. seems evident here in um, Genesis chapter 13. Yeah, that people it, have agency. Yes. But on the other hand, that agency isn't going to prevent that will from occurring. Mm-hmm. And so you often have to think about, uh, you know, divine will, you know, if, if you're even somebody who attributes that. Um, now, as somebody who believes in transcendence philosophically and metaphysically requiring to be imminent, mm-hmm. I I absolutely would argue that all day. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a divine presence that implicates human experience. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. But therefore, then we have to go, so what? what's that implication? Is God just pulling the strings and making everything happen, mm-hmm. right? Like a puppet master. Is that what you would call predeterminism? Uh, yeah, or just determinism, okay, determinism, determinism in okay. general. Mm-hmm. This is not determinism. Right. And so some people who go like, you know, this thing happened, it's God's will. That's not how the text appears for it to work. So you can say there is an ultimate will, but that ultimate will is often affected by the decisions that humans make mm-hmm. in, you know, an argument for free will because God is eminently present um, and because we have agency that have to make that will adapt. Um, the question then is, can we change God's will? And this is something that Gregory of Nyssa talks about where he says, no, you can't. You can change the, the route and the function, but the ultimate will is going to end at the at the end of the narrative okay. that is human history. Yeah. We do get to impact how that happens, though. Okay, like you could throw rocks in a, in a river or a stream and maybe alter its course a little bit, but it's still going to flow to the sea. That's what water that's does. A, yeah, that's a really good way to, to picture mm-hmm. that. And I, I just bring that up because um, that's, if you're wondering why, like, why is Tyler so willing to throw Abram under the bus? Mm-hmm. And it's because I do think it's an intentional picture of the elevation of transcendence and imminence mm-hmm. and how the will works. I, I wholeheartedly will believe that Abram and Lot, this is not how this was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. It seems to be going against everything we've seen in the text so far. And yet the covenant endures. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the limitedness of Abram and Lot kind of changes the course of the river a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the covenant endures. And I think for the Jewish imagination, that's really important because it shows the covenant's not dependent on humans. Yeah, that's part of their identity. It's Mm kind of like, this is what to me is so unique and so genius about the ancient Jewish literature and their mindset is the fact that unlike the other gods who just had control over humans and they just treated them like pawns and like slaves and did whatever they wanted, humans in this case were definitely a part of it and they had the agency in there, but it's not about the perfection of the or, or imperfection of the humans or what they do. This transcendent God is going to be able to continue that will no matter what, and yet humans have a lot of agency and even become co-creators, co-covenant people. And then we'll see even in, in chapter 15 with the, with the actual setting of the covenant, it's a very you know, ritualistic situation. God is the one who actually makes the covenant. Abraham himself doesn't really even have any obligation to it, which comes out real interesting. And you see this play very out unique. because Israel makes decisions that change the course of yeah. the river and lead to exile. Yeah. And they don't win their way out of exile. Right. The transcendent being has to intervene right. and work with the cards that they decided mm-hmm. to play and figure out a way to get them out of exile. And so 
that's that language is important too. I know we're starting to get into the weeds here. A little bit, yeah, but, but it's a neat, it's such a unique worldview. And it's important for theology and how I see Christians talk about this yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Because I would make an argument, and, and if we get to the prophetic text, I will make this argument. God doesn't send them to exile. Right. God allows them a particular agency while still making sure that, the, as Gregory of Nyssa said, the end of the story will tell us what the ultimate will was. Mm-hmm. And so they send themselves. Yeah, and God allows happens. it. And yeah. you still have to then wrestle. And this is what the book of Lamentations does. It wrestles with, why would God even allow that to be a possibility? Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to this issue of transcendence and imminence. That free will has to be a part of the conversation and it's okay if that doesn't inhibit God's good intentions still maintaining at the end of the narrative of human history. Yeah. That's the argument that Gregory of Nyssa makes. Okay. Um, so you see that you'll see that with exile. Um, you're going to see that with some of the processes that unfold with the monarchy. Uh-huh. David is blatantly a story of like continually screws up. Oh, he's jerk. Um, and, and yet the covenant endures. And so mm-hmm. it's a way to put humans in their proper place. It's a way to understand transcendence. And it's a way for us to think about the point then becomes, you know, why does Torah exist? Why, why do you have all of these commands? And no Jewish thinker ever has said, those are things you have to do in order to win God's favor. Or No. It wasn't that mindset at it all. It was an act of worship. Mm-hmm. We do these things because we want to participate in the ultimate will. Mm-hmm. We're aligning ourselves with it yes. by obeying these particular commands. That helps you to see how to align I, yourself. I hear, I hear Christians, you know, where they talk about reading Paul and they go, yeah, Paul, you know, said Jesus did away with the law. Mm-hmm. No, that act of worship still exists. That pursuit of righteousness still exists. And I hear atheists attack Christianity to go, or just any sort of, uh, uh, believer in God and, and they go, uh, you know, you really think that, you know, life is about doing these random moral acts to try to win some reward. Yeah. It's like, what Bible are you reading? Mm-hmm. That's not in here. That That's not the point at all. The point of Torah, the point of the commandments, the point of, you know, you can take us further, the kingdom of God or Christian ethics mm-hmm. is not about, uh, trying to fulfill some moral checklist. It's about going, if this is the way the world is teleological, tele, teleologically meant to be based on the character of divine transcendence, why not try to live accordingly? Right. That's the picture I'm arguing of Genesis so far. You now have two stories where Abram, the patriarchal father, fails to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and you're given a particular image of um, Adonai in this that I think is helpful, needs to be talked about more. Um, and would lead to a very, a very different and much more healthy Christian perspective. And I can't speak for the Jewish people on this, but a modern Christian perspective could be healthier. And you know, I really just wish that atheist, uh, just non uh, non theist in general who attack Christianity, you know, they paint me with the brush that I just got done yeah. yelling about. <laughs> yeah, and, right. and I want to go like, what if that's not? Just because you've heard Christians poorly articulate that, that's not the point here. Mm-hmm. What if there's something else going on? Well, here in Genesis chapter 13, we get an image of that. Yeah. So yeah, I'll end my rant there. That's going to come up again uh, <laughs> later. Um, I just, maybe my, let's zoom out for a second. My point is 
you can find philosophical and theological notions even within these stories. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So that's it for Genesis chapter 13. We have a really interesting uh, chapter next uh, next week with some fascinating characters, some fascinating historical events. Oh, it's some crazy uh, stuff. Chapter 14 is, mm-hmm. is a unique one. Yeah. Um, and then as we keep going through these chapters with Abram, um, who eventually becomes Abraham, um, we start seeing some more familiar stories mm-hmm. and maybe we haven't understood them as well as we could. So I'm looking forward to diving into those next time. Yep.